as we continue on with this amazing, amazing prophecy. A number of prophecies, actually, and as you know, we're in the last two oracles of the book of Zechariah. Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Edo, which means the Lord... One more time with conviction. The Lord, the Lord, at the appointed time. Yes, the Lord remembers. He has not forgotten. He doesn't forget you. He hasn't forgotten me. And the Lord's desire is to bless each and every one of us. Maybe not the the way we think we ought to be blessed or we want to be blessed, but His blessings are far greater. It's the blessing of the Lord that makes truly rich. And He desires to bless at the appointed time. And the time is appointed. We have an appointment right now. The time is now for us to be looking to His coming, but expressing the truth of the Gospel nonstop with everybody with whom we come in contact. Because the appointed time of His return is very close. Zechariah chapter 10, verse 3. I'm just going to read two verses, and then we'll go back and look at the context and, and think about these. Zechariah chapter 10, verse 3, My anger is kindled against the shepherds, and I will punish the male goats. For the Lord of hosts has visited his flock, the house of Judah, and will make them like his majestic horse in battle. From them will come the cornerstone, from them the tent peg, from them the bow of battle, from them every ruler, all of them together. Let me read that one more time. My anger is kindled against the shepherds, and I will punish the male goats. For the Lord of hosts has visited his flock, the house of Judah, and will make them like his majestic horse in battle. From them will come the cornerstone. From them the tent peg. From them the bow of battle. From them every ruler, all of them together. Lord, this is... This is great stuff. Uh, Lord, who else, who else thinks like this? Who else presents with such amazing pictures and such strong uh, impression what they're about to do, what they are doing? And I pray, Father, that you would give us understanding. This, is, this I confess, is a tough Section to really understand. On the surface, it seems pretty easy, Father, but there's stuff in here. I pray we'll get it. Help me, Lord, to get it, because I need to. Pour out your Spirit that we might learn this morning, and more than learn, that we might truly grow in our love for you and our understanding of what you're doing. In Jesus' name, amen. So after 11 years and 38 of the 39 books of the Hebrew Scriptures and three Gospels and the book of Revelation, are we picking up what God's put down? Are we starting to get it? Exactly what Les began with at communion, it begins and ends with Jesus Christ. It is all about Yeshua HaMashiach. Psalm 40, verse 7. You've heard me quote this countless times. Behold, I come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me. 
John 5.39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have life. It is these that testify about me. See, that's a problem even in the church today. So many churches searching the scriptures for life, but not recognizing Jesus. He's the point. And without Him, there is no life. Without Him, we have three-point homilies. We don't have truth. Revelation 19, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. That's what prophecy is all about. And Zechariah overflows with the testimony of Jesus again and again and again. We saw him, the branch. The branch is a man. The branch is a king. We saw him as we talked about last week. Just Jesus, just endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Portraying, talking about his, his first coming, that arrival into Jerusalem on the foal of the donkey. Just Jesus. But just Jesus is both the babe in the manger of Luke 2.12 and he's the ancient of days of Daniel 7.22. Of whom else can it be said, Matthew 13.55, is this not the carpenter's son? As well as Mark 15.39, truly this man was the son of God. What other person is described like a root out of parched ground, Isaiah 53, verse 2. Who has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him, and yet it is written, Revelation 1, 7, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the, of the earth will mourn over him, so it is to be. Amen. About whom has it been declared, John nineteen five? Behold the man. As well as Isaiah 40, verse 9, Behold your God. Just Jesus. He is the everyman, and He is the eternal God. He is the personal friend, and He is the profound majesty. He's the good shepherd, and He's the glorious King. He is all of that, and so much more. He is just Jesus, the just ruler. But I want to ask you a strange question about Him today. As we stay before Him, as we seek to understand, really understand Jesus for who He is. What ticked Him off? What got His goat? What steamed His shawl? What made Him hot under the talit? What was it that really, really angered Jesus, our Lord? And we only see Him angry three, three times in the Scriptures. Two, overtly, one, we can assume he was probably angry. Just three. At the beginning of his ministry, John chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, tells us he comes into the temple and he sees what's going on. This is at the beginning of his ministry, according to John. And he clears the temple in anger, driving out the money changers and all the animals and all the selling and buying. He's just so angry about what he sees. And it's a good anger, a righteous anger. And the Gospels tell us again at the end of his ministry. Matthew 21.12, Mark 11.15, Luke 19.45. I know some of the verses aren't up there. I didn't have room this today. But in all of that, at the end of his ministry, he goes back into the temple and clears it again a second time as if bookending the clearing of the temple in his ministry. So we see those two times, beginning and end of his ministry. And the third time... 
He's in the synagogue on the Sabbath. Mark chapter 3, verse 4, he said to them, Is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath? To save a life or to kill? But they kept silent. And after looking around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, he said to the man who was there with a the withered hand, he said, Stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored, and the Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. Jesus in that synagogue, what does it look like for Jesus to look at you with anger? I don't want to know. I do not want to see those eyes. Not angry eyes. And he looked around in that synagogue that day and he was disgusted. Furious and grieved that they couldn't see the value of healing a man though it was Shabbat. There's one more time, and it's the time that we're uncertain about. Was he angry? They certainly are angry words that he used. Matthew 23, verse 15. All of Matthew 23, Jesus lets loose with a string of woes to the Pharisees. Listen to the words of verse 15. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and on land to make one proselyte, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Now, I think that was laced with a little anger. You don't say things like that without being at least extremely stern. And Jesus' anger, what we see in all of these examples, Jesus' anger was kindled against bad shepherds, corrupt leaders. That made him mad. Shepherds of the Bridge Fellowship, let's all keep that in mind. His anger against humans who lead other humans in a poor direction or in a bad way is wholly consistent with a holy God. And we see that in verse 3. My anger is kindled against the shepherds. I will punish the male goats. The Hebrew word for shepherds, ra'ah, means feeders or keepers. It is just the, the typical word for shepherd. It's those who are tasked with the guarding and the keeping and the caring of the flock. It's those who have the responsibility to look out for the flock. And so the shepherds of Israel were the prophets and the priests and the kings. They were the ones given the responsibility to oversee and to care for and to nurture the flock that belonged to God, the great shepherd. But it also says he's going to punish the male goats. What did they do? (laughs) The phrase there, male goats, he goats, in the Hebrew is atudim. And it's an interesting word because not only does it mean goats or rams, but it means chief ones. The idea being the dominant ones of the herd. Dominant goats within the herd. Dominant sheep who would push back against the herd, who the rest of the herd would follow. So who's he talking about here? The he-goats describe the affluent and the influential in Israel. These are the power brokers with the purse strings and even the puppet strings of the leadership. These are the ones who may not be prophet, priest, or king, but they've got all the influence. And they're using it And they're using it badly. You see, no one pulls the wool over his eyes. He's not sheepish when it comes to justice. You could say he's going to get their goat. (laughs) You want to ignite the fire of the Lord's anger? You want to really tick Jesus off? 
Use your influence to oppress. Use, if you have it, affluence to afflict. And you will anger the Lord. And my friends, especially gentlemen, listen. Dominance and oppression are poor character qualities. In the home as well as in the government. Dominance and oppression never typifies a man of God. And many of us husbands need to learn that. That being boss in your home is not what you are called to. Being lord of the manor is not what it's about. God is not impressed with the he-goat. Rather the humble man who loves his wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might present her washing her with the water and the word. That's the kind of man who's not a he-goat, that's a shepherd after God's own heart. Back in verse 2, right before verse 3, at the end there, it says, the people wander like sheep. They are afflicted because there is no shepherd. That's how Jesus found them. Right? We talked about this Wednesday. When Jesus came on the scene, He discovered His people to be like sheep without a shepherd. He felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd, Matthew 9.36. God's heart is a, a shepherd's heart for His people. And those who would be in charge in some position of authority among His people, be it in the church, be it in the family... They have a responsibility to shepherd the way God does, which is with compassion and tenderness and gentleness and kindness and humility. And that is a challenge because most of us boneheaded guys think leadership is power, and it's not. Because there's only one power. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the good shepherd who knows how to wield His power for the sake of His people. So here, the people either had no shepherd at all, or they had bad ones. And so he says, from the Lord of hosts, for the Lord of hosts, has visited his flock, the house of Judah, and will make them like his majestic horse in battle. In this prophecy, God promises to restore his flock, and I like this, and to make them battle ready. Sheep with shields. A flock with fierce eyes, ready to fight with their king. Verse 5, skipping verse 4, verse 5 says, They will be as mighty men, treading down the enemy in the mire of the streets in battle. They will fight and the Lord will be with them. And the riders on horses will be put to shame. I will strengthen the house of Judah and I will save the house of Joseph. By the way, when you see the house of Joseph in Scripture, what that's referring to is the northern kingdom of Israel primarily. Because the house of Joseph is Ephraim and Manasseh, Joseph's two sons. And Ephraim and Manasseh were the largest tribes in the northern kingdom, and so that encompasses all of the northern kingdom. Judah, obviously the southern kingdom. And I will bring them back, because I have had compassion on them, and they will be as though I had not rejected them. For I am the Lord their God, and I will answer them. Remember, this is after the Babylonian captivity. And as we talked about midweek, God already brought them back, didn't He? Not like He's going to. Yeah, He brought them back once. He's going to do it a second time. 
And Zechariah is now looking ahead, looking forward to that day when God is going to restore His people again. When He is going to bring them back in full might and full power and they will be like a mighty horse of battle. Ephraim will be like a mighty man, verse 7. And their heart will be glad as if from wine. Indeed, their children will see and be glad. Their heart will rejoice in the Lord. And verse 8 says, I will whistle for them to gather them together. For I have redeemed them and they will be as numerous as they were before. It's a beautiful section of prophecy. A promise to the people of Israel, not that they would be like they were after the Babylonian captivity. They will be like they were before. That is under the rule and reign of Shlomo, king of peace. Solomon. Better than that. A double portion, other places in Scripture say. They're going to come back and it's going to be marvelous. So here's what he's saying. He visits his people. He restores his people. He equips his people to be mighty. And when it's all said and done, he whistles for them. I love it. Like a shepherd whistling for his flock. But right here in the middle of this Incredible prophetic promise. A verse stands out. For in it we see the person through whom God's going to get it done. Verse 4. From them will come the cornerstone. From them the tent peg. From them the bow of battle. And from them every ruler, all of them together. David Barron calls it one of the richest messianic prophecies in the Hebrew Scriptures. We have in this short verse, he writes, not only allusions, but a terse summary of a number of utterances by the former prophets in reference to the character and mission of Israel's promised Redeemer. Verse 4 is a huge verse of Jesus. Just Jesus. Verse 4 is all about Jesus, who He is, what He's going to do. And so, let's look at it. Again, from them will come the cornerstone. From them will come the tent peg. From them, the bow of battle. And from them, every ruler, all of them together. Four amazing allusions to the Messiah are given. Now, if you just pick these four out of nowhere, they would seem so ludicrous, so ridiculously random. What, is a, what does a tent peg and a cornerstone and a bow of battle and a ruler have in common? Anywhere else, it doesn't make sense. Anywhere else, they're just random pictures. But together, together, they speak again of the character and mission of Messiah. And before we get to him, we've got to look at where these four things come from. Each of these four lines begins. You see it over and over. From them, from them, from them, from them. But it's in the third person masculine singular. It's not from them. It's out of or out from him. And I think that's important to note. Out of him will come the cornerstone. Out of him will come the tent peg. Out of him will come the bow of battle. And out from them, every ruler, all of them together. So why is it translated, at least in the New American Standard Bible, why is it translated from them, if it's in the singular, if it's from him? Very simple. Him must be understood as the house of Judah. Okay, him is not Messiah. Him is not Jesus. Him is Judah. Judah has just been talked about. 
The Lord of hosts has visited his flock, verse 3, the house of Judah, and will make them like his majestic horse. From him will come the cornerstone. From whom? From Judah. That is to say, this one who comes, this Messiah, before we even get to these four descriptions, he comes from the house of Judah. He comes out of Israel. Now, you Bible students have heard that before, you know. And Jesus, of course, was a Jew. Of the house of Judah, of the line of David. He comes out of Judah. Deuteronomy 18, verse 15. Moses said this is what would take place. He wrote, the Lord your God. He said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen, and you shall listen to him. Truly, Jesus is the great prophet of Deuteronomy 18. Jeremiah chapter 30 verse 21 says, Their leader shall be one of them. Their ruler shall come forth from their midst. I will bring him near and he shall approach me. For who would dare risk his life to approach me, declares the Lord. You see, only Jesus can do that. Only Jesus can approach the Lord and not die. Because Jesus is the Lord. Well, how does that work, Rick? I don't know. I don't know. He's just Jesus, but so much more. Romans 9.4 Paul said to Israel belongs the adoption as sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises whose are the fathers and note this and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh who is overall God blessed forever. Amen. From him, from them, out of the house of Judah. And we come to these great images now, out of the house of Judah, images of Messiah. The first two are related to his first coming. The second two are related to his second coming. Look at the first one. From them will come the cornerstone. The cornerstone. Hebrew is finah. Finah, which means corner, literally. Corner. And both Jews and Christians alike know this to be messianic. You could say, who's the cornerstone? And and your average Christian, even not studied, your average Christian would probably say, oh, that's Jesus. He's the cornerstone, right? Psalm 118.22, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Finah. Isaiah 28, verse 16, Therefore thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation firmly placed. And he who believes will not be disturbed. The cornerstone. And you all know Jesus owned that image. That's me, he says. Matthew 21, 42, Did you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? Quoting Psalm 118, this has become the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord and it is marvelous in our eyes. Both Mark and Luke, along with Matthew, repeat Psalm 118, speaking of the chief cornerstone, Jesus applying that to himself. Paul and Peter quote Isaiah 28, speaking of the costly cornerstone, lay in Zion. Isaiah 28, Paul and Peter talk about that, the rejected cornerstone now that's all wonderful but the idea of the cornerstone the word cornerstone can get lost in translation if you say he's the cornerstone to a non-Christian they'll go okay is that like a last name what does that mean let's unpack it why why is Messiah called corner the cornerstone back in the 1890s 
a British archaeological group called the Palestine Exploration Fund, because in the 1890s the entire land was called Palestine, thanks to the Romans. The Palestine Exploration Fund began digging in Jerusalem, and they unearthed, quote, the most interesting stone in all the world, the cornerstone of Solomon's temple. Now, if you didn't know it had been discovered, maybe you missed that in the news. It was in the 1890s, okay? They have discovered we have now the cornerstone of Solomon's temple. And so, the Palestine Exploration Fund wrote, Among the ancient Jews, the foundation cornerstone of their sanctuary on Mount Moriah was regarded as the emblem of moral and spiritual truths. It had two functions to perform. Think about this related to Jesus. Two functions of the cornerstone. Number one, like other foundation stones, it was a support for the masonry above. Supporting the masonry. Strength as a foundational cornerstone. That's Jesus. He is the groundwork of support. When everything else is loose, when everything else is uncertain or shaky, He is as solid as bedrock. You can rely on Him. You can count on Him. You can go to Him even when all other people around you are shaky. Man, you can trust in Him. He's the only true foundation in this life. There is no other. 1 Corinthians 3.11, Paul said, No man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. He is that foundation stone, and He's great for building on. We're talking right now. We're working out uh, the the baptistry. We're going to have a baptistry inside. Yay! We're working on that, putting it together, laying out designs, thinking it through. But part of the deal is to put it in here. We have to make sure that the foundation is strong enough. Because, you know, with, with stone and water and everything else, you could have two tons of weight bearing down on the foundation. foundation's got to be strong. And in Jesus, the foundation is strong. And the foundation, listen, is great for building on. 1 Peter 2.4 Coming to Him as to a living stone which has been rejected by men but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious corner, and he who believes in Him will not be disappointed. So, again, quoting the Hebrew passage. The only way that the church can withstand the earthquakes of changing culture is to be built and to remain on the foundation of the cornerstone of Jesus Christ. If Jesus remains Lord, and that means what He says goes, if He remains King, and that means it's His Word and not mine, if I stand on that, the foundation is secure. If the church wanders from that, the foundation gets wobbly. Because only Christ is the true foundation for the church. Only Christ is the true foundation for you and for me. But the cornerstone does something else. Not only is it a solid foundation, but the Palestine Exploration Fund additionally wrote, it also had to face both ways. Being a cornerstone. In other words, it was a union between two walls. How does that apply to Jesus? The cornerstone. Supporting two walls. He is the Christ of Christianity. He is the Messiah of Judaism. He is both. He is the juncture of the two faiths. 
He is the meeting of the two hearts. The foundation stone who unites the two walls at the corner. As Paul said in Ephesians 2.14, He Himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in His flesh the enmity, which is the law of the commandments contained in ordinances, so that in Himself He might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. He's the cornerstone between Christianity and Judaism. What about Islam? Islam is considered in the world to be the third of the world's great religions. And your average Joe walking along down the street would think Christianity, Islam, and Judaism all kind of share a lot of the same roots, a lot of the same tenets, and it's not true. Because Islam does not proclaim the same Jesus of Scripture. And Jesus is the cornerstone. Yeshua is the one who unites faith. He is Israel's Messiah and the church's salvation, our Savior. He is both and thus He unites. But if Jesus, if Jesus is not the cornerstone, the faith is wrong. But He unites in the corner. In His first coming, Christ the cornerstone... The reason why I don't include Islam in that is when you come to the corner, there's really only two walls. Only room for the two walls. Why isn't Islam included in that? Because it doesn't come to the corner. It goes to Muhammad. You've got to come to the corner. Have you come to the corner? Have you in your life come to the cornerstone who is Jesus Christ? In His first coming... Christ the cornerstone was rejected that He might be the foundation of salvation and the future peace of the two walls, Israel and the church. The cornerstone. Well, I'm sure we could think more through on that one, but let's go on to the next image because it is related. Secondly, He said, from them will come the tent peg. The tent peg? The word is yated in the Hebrew and it's also translated or more literally translated a spike or nail. So the picture starts to become a little clearer. Drawing our attention immediately to the cross, immediately to the nails in his hands and his feet, and it should. But understand when Zechariah wrote this, from then will come the tent peg, he would be thinking, or he might have been drawn back to a previous prophecy, not recognizing yet the significance or what would come with the cross, but going back to a previous prophecy. Let's go there, back to Isaiah chapter 22. Isaiah 22, go back left, several books. Still somewhere in the middle of your Bibles, Isaiah chapter 22 and verse 22. Now we've talked about this prophecy before, but let's let Scripture interpret Scripture. Understanding that from Judah comes the tent peg, the yated, the nail. Here we are again, Isaiah, back 200 years before this wrote. Verse 22, Then I will set the key of the house of David on his shoulder. When he opens, no one will shut. When he shuts, no one will open. I will drive him like a peg in a firm place. Literally, I will drive him like a nail in a firm place. And he will become a throne of glory to his father's house. 
Now, historically, there was an immediate reference here that Isaiah was using, and it was to a steward of the house of David. Two stewards, actually. One was a bad steward who was about to be replaced. The good steward comes along, and his name is Eliakim. Eliakim is the one, at least in the immediate sense, that's being referred to. I will set the key of the house of David on his shoulder. When he opens, no one will shut. When he shuts, no one will open. But Jesus makes it clear that Eliakim is a representative of himself. By the way, Eliakim means God raises up. So here's this guy who is called the tent peg, who's called the nail driven in, the firm, driven in a firm place, who on whose shoulders will set the keys of the house of David, who opens and no one will shut, and shuts and no one will open. And Jesus said in Revelation 3.7, to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, he who is holy, he who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens, says this, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door that no one can shut. Jesus said that. That's me. Eliakim. God raises up just as God raised Jesus from the dead. And so the prophetic uh, word there in Isaiah is clearly Jesus. He says that was talking about me in its ultimate fulfillment. And understand that before Jesus could become, before he would become a throne of glory to his father's house, he must first be as a nail driven in a firm place, and he was at Calvary. Isaiah chapter 2, verse 24. So they will hang on him all the glory of his father's house, offspring and issue, all the least of the vessels, from bowls to all the jars. So uh, uh, the yatade was a peg that could be put in a wall. And you could hang cups and, and pots and pans on pegs in, the, in a wall in the house. Well, this is now referring to all the people of Israel. All their hopes are now going to be hung on this nail. But watch what it says. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, verse 25, the peg driven in a firm place will give way. It will even break off and fall, and the load hanging on it will be cut off, for the Lord has spoken. What does that mean? Nailed into a firm place, nailed onto the cross, he would break off and fall. Jesus died on that cross. And what happened when he died? Everything hanging on him, all our sin, all our hopelessness, all our despair is cut off. It's gone. What a beautiful picture. Our sin is the load that's cut off at the cross of Calvary. And the reason we can't hang our hopes on Him is because our sin was hung on Him. And when He died, it broke off. It was cut off forever. He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, 2 Corinthians 5.21, so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Cornerstone and tent peg. He is the corner, the buttress of both walls, who upholds everything else. He is the corner, and He is also the nail driven in the firm place. The next two portraits speak very clearly of His return, but they don't necessarily speak very clearly on the surface. This is where it gets interesting. I think it was interesting before, but this is where it gets curious. In fact, problematic. Go back to uh, Zechariah. From them, the bow of battle. The cornerstone, the tent peg, number three, the bow of battle. This is the keshet milchama. Now, you know, I give you these words in Hebrews. 
in Hebrew, not to be impressive because I can barely pronounce them myself, but so that you know where the word's being used and how it was used in another place, which I'll show you in just a minute. The battle bow. The bow of battle. Some immediately see mighty Messiah coming in his fury and waging war. In fact, I will confess to you that until this morning, that's what I thought. (laughs) I woke up this morning with a different perspective and went back and looked again. But the battle bow, hey, Revelation 19.11, I saw heaven open and behold a white horse and he who sat on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and wages war. The battle bow, yeah, that's Messiah and he's coming back to fight. But I kept reading this, the battle bow, the battle bow, the battle bow and it was just sticking in my Crawford all weekend long. (laughs) Until this morning when I realized why. When do we ever see Messiah with a battle bow? We don't. We don't. And if we allow Scripture to interpret Scripture, look back at chapter 9, verse 10. What does he say? I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem and the bow of war, the Keshet Mechamah, will be cut off. I'm going to cut off the battle bow. Well, over here, Lord, says from them comes the battle bow. So if you're going to cut off the battle bow, how come here you're saying he's going to use the battle bow? That just doesn't seem quite right. Something's wrong here. You Bible students might say, yeah, but it's a picture of peace by strength. And I agree. But we've got to probe a little bit more. Who is it? You Bible students are going to jump on this, I know. You may already have. Who is it that comes with a bow of war conquering and to conquer? Turn over to Revelation chapter 6. All the way to the end of your Bibles. The last book, Revelation chapter 6, verse 1. And this is why it was bugging me. And I didn't know, but I knew something wasn't right. And I kept going back to this again and again, trying to understand fully. The bow is cut off, but this, from Judah comes this one with the bow of battle. I don't understand. What are you talking about, Lord? Revelation chapter, one, chapter 6, verse 1. Then I saw when the Lamb broke one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying, as with the voice of thunder, Come! And I looked, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it had a bow. And a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. This is not Messiah. For several reasons. It's not Messiah, for one thing, because he's wearing a crown, but the crown is a Stephanus in the Greek, which is a temporary crown. It's the leafy crown that you would give a victor in the Olympic Games. It would die. It would shrivel up. And so it's not It's not the crown that we see Jesus wearing in Revelation 19. That's the diadem. That's the mighty, everlasting, amazing crown. This is just Stephanus. And this one comes with a bow. And notice who follows him. War, famine, death, and martyrdom, and terror. So his entire posse tells us this is impossibly (laughs) Messiah. It's not him. Who is it? It's Antichrist. Antichrist, the false Messiah who comes to conquer. He's the one who comes with a bow. He's the one. What about Messiah? Go over to Revelation 19. 
verse 11. If Antichrist bears the bow of war and comes conquering and to conquer, what single weapon does Messiah bear? What is the weapon of King Jesus when he returns? Anyone know? A sword. A sword. Revelation 19.11 And I saw heaven open to behold a white horse and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire. On his head are many, there they are, diadems, everlasting crowns. And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses... And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, which we've been reading. But from his mouth comes a sharp-edged sword, a two-edged sword. The sword of his mouth is the sword of the Word. It is the Word that comes out of the mouth of Jesus. And right now, that Word saves Right now, every word that proceeds from the mouth of God is a word of salvation. John 5.24 Truly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death and into life. The word that saves. He didn't come with a sword the first time. He came with a saving word. But when he returns, his word is like a sword. John 12.48 He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. The word is what will judge him in the last day. The word of Christ. The sword. That's the weapon of our Messiah. Not a bow. Messiah bears the sword of the word, not the bow of battle. So go back to Zechariah chapter 10. We know that from them will come the cornerstone. From them will come the tent peg. From them the bow of battle, which implies that out of Israel will come Antichrist. That he will truly, at least at some level, at some way, have roots in Judaism. Some believe maybe out of the tribe of Dan. But there are things throughout the book of Daniel where, where it talks about that he's going to reject the God of his fathers, which is a very Hebrew phrase. An Antichrist, if he didn't have Jewish background, would not reject the God of his fathers because his fathers wouldn't be Israel. But apparently, there's going to be some Jewish blood in this Antichrist. There almost would have to be. You know, for a man of peace to come on the scene and for Israel to accept him and to sign a covenant, enter into a covenant with him... He would have to have some Jewish blood. They'd have to look at him and go, you're one of us. And so, from them will come the bow of battle. And that gives us a clue about where we go on this last one. Wait, Rick, are you saying then the bow of battle is Antichrist here? And there's a picture of Antichrist in the middle of this beautiful picture of Messiah? Not quite. Not quite. Stick with me. Look at the last one. From them, from him, every ruler, all of them, together. Now that's the first place I started tripping up. What? 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 Every ruler all together. I mean, it would make sense if it was from them would come the king. From them would come the ruler. The only ruler. The one and true ruler. That's not what it says. 
Every ruler together. Kol Nogus. Nogus is the word translated ruler there. Yakdav together. And this is really troublesome. It is true that out of out of Judah has come every true ruler, at least ordained by God. Remember what old Jacob said on his deathbed, Genesis forty nine ten, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, a reference to Messiah, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. And historically Jesus came before the scepter, the right of self rule, completely de- departed from Judah. Jesus came, and it was right around that time after the birth of Jesus, probably, oh, around uh, his twelfth year, as Jesus is in Jerusalem with his parents for the Passover, the priests began to weep and to moan in the streets because at that point Rome rejected all self-rule for the Jewish people took away the right of capital punishment, took away the right of the leaders to make decisions for their own people. And they wept because the scepter had departed from Judah and they didn't know Shiloh was 12 years old and sitting right there. But he had already come. Okay, so what's this about? From them, every ruler, all of them together. Some think, well, that just has to do with the fact that all the rulers came out of Judah and so Jesus Christ would be the final one to come out of Judah and that would make some sense. All the rulers, speaking of all the kings of Judah. Another thought is that in and of himself, Jesus bears every aspect of authority and ruler and rule. He is all the rulers. I mean, if you take the sentence, every ruler, all of them together, you could say that in some ways it, it gathers the thoughts of all of the first three sentences. That he is the great prophetic cornerstone. He's the high priestly nail. He is the great king with with battle bow. Although we've already kind of started to refute that. But, But he is obviously prophet and priest and king. So maybe the idea of all rulers are just encompassed in Jesus Christ. But again, he doesn't carry a bow. Rick, you're really confusing us. I know. Welcome to my club. What's the problem? The problem here, and the reason why both those two possibilities I don't believe can work, is the word is all wrong. The word translated ruler, and if you have a King James Version, you already see the correct translation for it. The word translated ruler, from them, every ruler, all of them together, the word ruler, nojus, is oppressor. Taskmaster. Tyrant. It's used 24 times in the Hebrew Scriptures. Every single time, other than here, every other time, it is in the negative, it is the oppressor, it speaks of tyrannical, oppressive rulers. And all of a sudden, Zechariah comes along and says, from them comes every ruler altogether, and we're supposed to accept that that's Messiah? It's not. Jesus is not oppressive. He has never been oppressive. That's Antichrist. He'll be oppressive. He's an oppressive ruler. Many of the rulers in Judah were oppressive, unfortunately. And of course, out of the nations, we've had nothing but oppressive rulers, one right after the other, forcing executive order, I mean, forcing their their plans on the people. Jesus is not oppressive. 
And the word usage is absolutely telling. Again, if we let Scripture translate Scripture, the translation should be from them, every oppressor, all of them together. And that is the key. Look at verse 8 of chapter 9. This is the last time you hear that word before you get to chapter 10. I will camp around my house because of an army, because of him who passes by and returns. And no oppressor will pass over them anymore, for now I have seen with my eyes no more oppressors, no more oppression, declares the Lord. I will put an end to that. The King James translation of Zechariah 10.4, out of him came forth the corner, out of him the nail, out of him the battle bow, out of him every oppressor together. So what are you saying, Rick? Listen, the third and fourth pictures here are not the form of Messiah, they are the function of Messiah. The first two are the form, the picture of Messiah. He is the great cornerstone. He is the one who is like a nail driven in a firm place, the tent peg. And those portray for us who Messiah is, what he would do, what he looks like in his first coming. But in his second coming, out from them will go the bow of battle. Out from them will go all oppression. That's what Jesus does when he returns. He removes the battle bow. He removes the oppression. He cuts off the bow of war. Jesus Christ drives out every last oppressor. I think that's what it means. Jesus said in Luke 4.18, quoting Isaiah 61, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because He anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind does that sound oppressive and to set free those who are oppressed to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord that's what he comes to do so that out from Judah will come all oppression out from Judah will come the bow of war that stuff is to be done away with will be no more because he's the cornerstone and because he was the nail driven in a firm place. Yesterday was an oppressive day for me. It really was. I was grumpy. I was negative. And I didn't know why. I mean, all day long. I was just... About 9 o'clock last night, I said, Hey, Cheryl, you want to you watch something on TV? And she said, Yeah, if you're not going to be grumpy. <laughs> and I laid there last night going, God, why? 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 Why was today so oppressive? <laughs> and the, the thought that just kept coming back to mind as I was praying about it was, From them the bow of battle, and from them every ruler all together. And I'm like, I know, Lord, I'm done with my study. <laughs> Don't get, I, I know, I'll get that, but why today, why? Oppression, oppression, oppression. That word just kept rolling in my mind, and I felt oppressed. Now, understand something. I don't believe that Christians can be possessed. There are those who do. Now, you know, we can have that argument, but I don't believe it. I don't believe that followers of Jesus, filled with the Spirit of God, can be possessed 
by demons or can be possessed by, by the work of Satan. But we can be oppressed. We absolutely can be oppressed. How do we do that? By, by letting Him kind of whisper to us and by listening. By allowing His deception. By allowing Him to insert quiet little words of fear. We become oppressed. I was oppressed all day. It's, it's ironic to me. And I, I'm, I'm not making this up. This isn't like, okay, I need some good example for the sermon tomorrow, so I'll be oppressed today. <laughs> no, all day long, I'm just, ugh, dark thoughts. Heaviness in my heart. Depression. Grumpiness. I didn't want to be around the family. It's like the day I get to be with my kids. I don't want to. Hey, Dad! What? You know? <laughs> Let's play football! Go ahead! Without in a minute. You know, I mean, that's just, ugh. The devil oppresses. It's, it's what he does. He deceives and he oppresses. He tries to bring you down. He tries to tell you, you can't do that. You can't get out of this mess. You can't pull yourself up. This is too hard. This is too much. He oppresses constantly. That's where he works. Dark thoughts, heavy hearts, depression, addiction, despair. This is all oppression. Loneliness, helplessness, fear. It's all oppression. And it's what the devil does. And it's why we have a messed up world. Because he's out there, even in the church, trying to oppress wherever he can. Because if he can oppress you, he can keep you from declaring the gospel, which is good news. If he can keep us in the place of the bad news, the bad news, the Fox news, the MSNBC news, (laughs) the political news, that's bad. If we keep you there, so that that's all we're doing... And we don't do what we're called to do, which is to proclaim the good news, which is really hard to do when you're oppressed. Here's the good news. Jesus Christ drives out every last oppressor. So far, today's been a really good day. Because I woke up and I recognized that was the problem. It's so amazing to me. And if you don't think Pastor Rick's learning right along with everybody else, if you don't think this is practical for me, you got another thing coming. He drives out oppression so that we then can speak truth. So we can be free. Didn't we talk about that on Wednesday night that He, he offers free? Christ's love constrains me, controls me, even, even holds me captive. And there's freedom and there's joy and there's peace and there is release in Jesus Christ alone. The Antichrist and the devil and his demonic horde oppress. Turning your Bibles over to Acts chapter 10. We'll finish right there, but I've got to show you something. It's marvelous. Acts chapter 10, verse 38. Peter's out on the trail. Peter has been sent. You may recall he was, he was in Caesarea Maritima. Caesarea by the sea. He was up on the top of, of Simon the Tanner's house. And he's praying to the Lord. And he's trying to get a little quiet time before lunch is served. And the Lord starts to really speak to him and says, i got someone I want you to go to. And he sends Peter, this Jewish believer in Jesus, Jewish believer in a Jewish Jesus and part of a Jewish sect, off to the Gentile centurion named Cornelius. And in verse 38 of Acts chapter 10... Peter begins preaching. And he says, You know Jesus of Nazareth. He's speaking now to Cornelius and all his family. You know Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power. And how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed 
by the devil. See, that's what Jesus does. For God was with him. We are witnesses of all the things he did, both in the land of the Jews and Jerusalem. They also put him to death by hanging him on a cross. God raised him up on the third day, granted that he become visible, not to all the people, but to witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God. That is, to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, by the way, tells us that was as much as 500 people at one time. Verse 42, And he ordered us to preach to the people, and solemnly to testify that this is the one who had been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. Of him all the prophets bear witness that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sin. Peter is in it, man. He's preaching it, man. He's laying it out there, man. He's doing what what Peter does. And while he was still speaking these words, it's one of the rare moments the Holy Spirit interrupted him. The Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. All the circumcised believers who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. Picture the scene. Peter is rocking and rolling with the word. Peter's up there. He's like, yeah, it's this, it's that. And what, what? What? Why are you interrupting me? John, what's going on? What? And he looked and they're all filled with the Holy Spirit. You see, it wasn't Peter's words. It was Jesus. It wasn't a good sermon that they needed. It was the Spirit of the living God. And I'm convinced that the, most, the moment he spoke the name Jesus of Nazareth, something started happening. But he was too into his sermon to even realize it, you know. <laughs> and the people who were oppressed, not just those of Israel, but now for the first time the Gentiles who were oppressed would receive freedom, would be released, would be filled with the Spirit of God. And oppression would be taken away. Do you want to be free of oppression? Maybe it starts by even figuring out, am I? Is there oppression in my life? Is there something? Is there some way? Is there someone... Am I hopeless? Am I lonely? Am I fearful? Am I depressed? Do I have an addiction? Do I feel alone? Am I despairing? And sometimes we're trucking along just great, singing praise songs and everything's good, and then a day happens like happened to me yesterday where you just go down. And you're like, why? What's up? You need to hear the Lord. You need to hear Jesus just say, I came to remove oppression. My day would have been infinitely better if I had dropped to my knees in the morning. And just said, Lord, I'm doing a lousy job on my own. I need to know you're here. My friends, Jesus has no patience with oppression. In fact, it kindles his anger. He looks at those who oppress and he says, I'm going to deal with you. I will not allow this to go on. It is why he's the cornerstone who took the driven nails. It is why he comes removing the battle bow, speaking the sword of the word to drive out every last oppressor. And the day is coming when all oppression will cease. Rachel, come on up. Is there something heavy in your life? Is there something oppressing you? Come to Jesus and let Him remove the oppression.
Let's stand and sing. Prayer team, come on up to the front.